Awesome, awesome. Stay standing, stay standing. Everyone else is going to join you as we read God's word this morning. Turn to your neighbor and say, you need more coffee. I need more coffee. And I need more volume, more monitor, more monitor. All right. What is today? Today is a good day to renew my mind, to encourage my soul, to align with truth, and walk in faith. Amen. Today is a good day for that. I'm so glad that you are, you are here. We're in a series called To My Friend Who Left the Faith. People leave the faith for all kinds of reasons. You may know someone that was once a believer and has left the faith. Maybe they no longer believe in God at all. Maybe they're agnostic or atheist. They leave the faith for doubt. We talked about doubt a couple of weeks ago. They leave because of unbelief. They leave because they can't reconcile that there is a God in heaven who loves us and we live a life of pain and suffering. They can't reconcile that, so they just leave the faith. They leave for all types of reasons. I want to hit another reason today why people leave the faith, and that is hypocrisy. Woo! What a topic. People leave the faith because the church is fake. Anybody ever? Come on. Anybody ever? Anybody ever been tempted to look at someone and say, I thought you were a Christian? I know you have. I know, I've thought it too. I've thought it too. People leave the faith because of hypocrisy. So we're going to talk about the solution to hypocrisy today. Our text is a par- parable that speaks to both those inside the church, that's you and I and everyone that's watching online, and also it speaks to those that have left the church because of hypocrisy. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 18 today. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Then Peter came to him, to Jesus, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and that payments were made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, found a friend who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat 
saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Father, we come before you today. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would let this word speak to our point of need. God, whatever is in the room, whatever is unsettled, the, the accounts that are owed, Father, I ask that you would just bring healing to our hearts today. God, that you would just bring revival to our homes in the name of Jesus. God, give us eyes to see what the Spirit of God is saying in this word. In Jesus' name I pray. Let the church say Amen. Before you sit down, I want you to turn to two or three people and say, that's a lot of money. And then you may be seated. Did everyone get a handout when you walked in? I hope so, because there is a search find, search and find, whatever you call on the back. And so as you get the answers for today's sermon, you're going to be able to find those words. Um, I spent a lot of time. If you find any words that, that I would not approve of in that square, it was an accident. I did try to proof it, but if you need a handout or you want to take one home to someone that's not here today, feel free to raise your hand. Our ushers will, our worship host uh, will get that to you. How many of you have ever been hurt by the church? Okay. Catholic church. All right. I mean, I'm hoping you're not talking about this church, but you might be because this church is made up of humans. <laughs> there are no perfect people here. I mean, my life is pretty close to perfect for me. Uh, it's funny, I have to say that because I often talk about the Enneagram. Did I tell you all this already? I talk about the Enneagram and a first-time guest got mad at me because I said my wife was an eight. <laughs> and she, she went to lunch with someone, Miss Lydia, and was confused and concerned. Why would pastor say his wife is an eight? I think she's a ten. Well, I, I need to clarify. Yeah, Carrie's like, I love that woman. Uh, Carrie is a 10 uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, but on the Enneagram, she's an 8. On the Enneagram, I'm a 4. Uh, and I think I'm a 10 as well, right, babe? All right. But you can get hurt in this church. I think this is a great church. I love this church. I, I we, 
invested our entire savings. We went all in 13 years ago. We, Carrie and I didn't have people funding this. We had 80000 in savings, and we took it to like negative $10 to start this church. I love this church, and nothing has hurt me greater than this church. And that's the truth. So you can get hurt in church. You can get hurt in this church. You know why? Because church is messy. It's messy. There are all kinds of people that come here, and, and even people with good hearts make mistakes. I mean, let me ask this, okay? Maybe you're too embarrassed to say that you've been hurt in church. Have you ever had a bad experience at a restaurant? Yes. Okay, a lot more people understand that. A bad experience at a burger drive-thru place, right? You drive through, this never happens at Chick-fil-A, but you drive through and you've ordered the specific sauces for whatever you're getting, and you leave and there's a long line and they did not include the honey mustard or whatever it is that you want. You know, the Cajun sparkle, Popeyes, come on. Who wants to eat chicken without Cajun sparkle? Do you know what I mean? That should just come with it. But they, they make a mistake and then, you know, you get offended. But um, I still go back to Popeyes. I do check my bag. Yes, I do. I do. I know which restaurants to check my bag before I drive off. I do. I don't check Chick-fil-A, but they've burned me too. I hate, I'm sorry, God. I hate to say this about Christian chicken. But they also have hurt my feelings before. They really have. So you've been hurt from a restaurant and a drive-thru. Did it make you only want to cook at home the rest of your life? <laughs> Truth number one today, wherever you go, you are going to get hurt. You can walk into the safest place called home, and sooner or later, you are going to get hurt. You can live alone, and you're going to hurt yourself. You will get offended with your own decisions. I'm so stupid. Why did I do that? Do you know what I mean? Wherever you go, there will be hurt. Now, uh, let me just make sure you understand this term. How many of you have heard the term church hurt? You've, okay, that's a term. Church hurt. Oh, man. Have you ever heard the term restaurant hurt? What about automotive shop repair hurt? Why do we have a name for church hurt? You get hurt everywhere, but we got to label something church hurt? Why? What's the motive? What's the thing pushing that term in culture? We don't say grocery store hurt. We don't. We don't say garage sale hurt. We say church hurt. And that's truth number two. Satan wants to exaggerate and highlight hurt in the church. So much so that even Christians have adopted this term. And we wear it like a badge. Oh, I've been church hurt. Oh, you have. So you just stopped going to church. And I guess you stopped eating burgers because Jack in the Box forgot your bacon. Is it all right if I, I'm just talking today? Satan wants to exaggerate and, and highlight it. And people get hurt in church because 
the truth is, that's just where people are. Wherever people are, you're going to get hurt. And listen, I've told people, I won't say her name, but she's sitting on the back row this side. (laughs) Oh, I made that too obvious. Yes, it's Jennifer. She got a little bit offended when we said to watch your purses in church. Not, not really offended. You know Jennifer. She's like fake offended, so she gets attention. She likes the spotlight. But she got Jennifer offended, so not really offended. Do you know what I mean? It, it's all good, right? You know, we're good, we're good, we're good. But when I would say from platform, hey, watch your purse, because someone behind you could steal something out of your purse. This is not a safe place. She got offended. She grabbed her purse and her kids a little bit tighter and wanted to know why that was. And I said, the reality is, if we are to reach the world for Jesus Christ, we want the lost coming in. And you don't know who's sitting behind you. And I hope there are people in this room right now that are so far from God, you look all pretty and put together. But I hope that you're so far from God and you don't even know what's about to smack you upside your soul. And that's why this is not a safe place, because we're not content being a Christian little community where we just huddle together and have our Christian casserole and everybody's safe together. No, I want to know if somebody's holding a shank today. I want to, I on some Sundays, wonder if I might get stabbed. It's happened. It's happened. I mean, not getting stabbed. But I have had security warn me that it was a possibility. It's happened. Now, some of you are like, oh, baby, we are choosing a new church. We are going to that Baptist church down the road. I hear they are small and they're not letting other sinners in. So we're just going there. You can get hurt wherever people are. And especially in a church like this that loves the lost, you're going to get some people that really have some rough edges. Their vocabulary is not all cleaned up yet. It should be in process and in progress. We should be looking more like Jesus every day. We don't, God loves you the way you are, but God loves you too much to leave you the way you are. So, so we've had people come in just throw in all kinds of foul language, and we try to prevent it from getting into kids' ministry, and it, you know, we teach people, we mentor people, we grow them to... You know, let their, we elevate their language so that they can kind of reflect Jesus a bit. I mean, I don't think we're going to be dropping any bombs at the throne room. Are you with me? Some of you are already offended at me this morning. I've already said something that's kind of gotten on your nerves, rubbed you a little bit wrong. Some of you are wondering, looking around, if there's any knife carriers in the room. (laughs) Satan wants to exaggerate and highlight hurt in the church. Church hurt is real. Can I just give it some legitimacy this morning? There are leaders in the church who have abused their power. There are, and I won't cover for them. One of the hardest jobs I had, I was early on in ministry, had just become a pastor. My first 
Well, my two first tasks, one was to bury an infant within the first month of pastoring. Unbelievably difficult. And then the second was to confront a gentleman in our children's ministry, wasn't at this church, I had to confront a gentleman in our children's ministry who was accused of inappropriate behavior with the child in our ministry. Not under my watch, it was under, that doesn't even matter. I had to confront it. Church hurt is real. People do get hurt in church. Getting hurt in church happens. And listen, if, you want, if you've not been hurt in church, God bless you. It's coming. It is coming. You will get hurt in church. And if you want to know what it's like to be hurt in church, become a pastor. A lot of congregation members think it's the leadership that does the hurting, but there is no more wounded people from church than leadership. I just think I'm fine with church hurt conversation, by the way. Is that really my time? I'm fine with having church hurt conversations. And I, don't, I think you should have some like, some little huddles where you're able to be vulnerable and be real and share the hurt and the pain that you've experienced. You should, we should not sweep it under the rug. We should not act like it doesn't exist. But I just think when I'm having a church hurt conversation, I should lead with, I've contributed to hurting others in the church. Because that conversation is is often anchored with, I've been hurt. But the truth is, you've hurt people. You've hurt people in the church. I've hurt people in the church. And I think that should be our frame of reference. There is church hurt because I'm flawed. And I hurt people. And I don't mean to hurt people. I don't want to hurt people. I, I have hurt people. It, what's not on purpose, it's not intentional. I'm not one of those maniacal leaders that sits behind the curtain wondering who I'm going to hurt next, but I have hurt people with my pride. I have hurt people with my insecurity. I have hurt people with my anger. I have hurt people with my fear. I'm sure you have too, and those are legitimate hurts. Other times, though, I've, I've caused hurt that I don't think is legitimate. I just think it's ridiculous, actually, to be quite honest. Someone leaves the church and then gets offended at the leadership because they don't reach out and track them down and hunt them down and continue the relationship. And I'm like, wait, wait. You abandon the church family, and then you want the family to run after you? I think that's just ridiculous. I mean, the truth is, if you leave a church, and I'm not, I, I've not had a situation, I'm not like frustrated or angry, and I'm not like subtly venting at all. I'm not holding on to any animosity, but this is the truth. If you leave a church family, you should expect that relationship to change. Because the, the church family just as, as you feel like it's no longer a fit, when you walk away, they're thinking, I thought you were with us. I thought we were doing this thing together. Now, it is true that God will send people 
God will send people away from a church for whatever, any number of reasons. He will send them away for work, for college, for ministry opportunity, relocation. God will replant people. And at this church, we, we don't hold anyone with a closed fist, right? You can look at Nashville, Tennessee and, and know that that is true. Half our congregation has moved to that place. It's fine. It's fine. I get word of the next person heading to Nashville, and I'm like, I know. I'm just waiting for God to send me there because I guess we're just having to start another branch in Nashville, Tennessee. But we don't hold anyone tightly. But when you leave because you're upset, you should expect that dynamic to change, right? People can get hurt and wounded for the silliest things. But sometimes your hurt is legitimate. We were in San Antonio, Texas for four years. I was in the United States Air Force. I served my country proudly behind a desk and a computer. And I was a great human resources guy. Accidentally sent a guy to Alaska by mistake, but that's another issue. That four years, he, yeah, he was glad because he was getting court-martialed. And I got him out of trouble. Yeah, that was not good. But... That's the past. <laughs> During our time in San Antonio, we went to a phenomenal church in San Antonio. Uh, pastors that we adore, pastors that saved our marriage. Carrie and I were struggling in our marriage, and we went to get counsel from the pastor. And he said the, great, the most wise thing. He said, y'all need counseling. He didn't try to act like he knew how to fix us. He didn't try to just pray it away. Not that prayer's weak, but he knew when we had reached the threshold of, yeah, this is beyond my expertise. I can help you in the spirit realm. I can teach you how to pray. I can cover your marriage, and we can, we can give you authority and the blood of Jesus and all of that. But y'all actually need to learn to communicate, and that's not my role in your life to teach you that. You need, you need counseling. And so we went to counseling. Carrie and I went to counseling. During that season, though, uh, Carrie had an opportunity for church hurt because she had, we knew no one in college, in uh, San Antonio. We had become very close friends with this couple, and it was a new new friendship. We were, we were getting close, but these guys were the only ones we knew, so we would show up to church just looking for them. You know, he was like a dentist, and they were a little bit older than us, and we kind of looked up to them, and they had taken us under their wing. Well, Carrie had a heart-to-heart with this lady and told her that we were having marriage problems. We were struggling. Carrie needed a confidant. And if you know Enneagram 8s, you know that that was hard to do anyway. To be vulnerable and to be honest and real and show flaws, that was hard. And Carrie shared that with this lady, and from that moment forward, we were, we were cut off. It was a rather large church. They would see us in the hallway and not make eye contact. I mean, we were hanging out together. We were doing lunches and dinners, but for whatever reason, this woman could not handle that our marriage was in trouble. I guess it threatened her marriage. That was probably a whole other situation that we didn't know about going on. But Carrie could have very easily said the church wasn't for her. Carrie could have said that the church wasn't available in the time when we needed it the most. Church hurt happens because church is messy. I'm a good man. I have a good heart. I probably care more than I should. I probably do more than I should. I probably say yes more than I should. But I'm still within me, locked up within me, is the potential to hurt you. 
That's why we're not building a church based on a man or a woman at the Exchange Church. We're building a church based on the character of God who will never let us down. He'll never leave or forsake you. God will never make a mistake. Even when the church or people let you down, God will not. Can I get an amen? All right, so let me just define hypocrite to you. The definition of hypocrite is one who assumes a false appearance, one who pretends to be what he is not, or to feel or believe what he does not actually feel or believe, especially a false pretender to virtue or piety. Hypocrite. Anyone in here ever felt like a hypocrite before? A few? Yeah. Here's what a hypocrite is not. A hypocrite is not someone who's made a mistake. <laughs> That's good news. That is good news. You can actually love Jesus, claim to be a follower of Christ, and still make a mistake. That does not make you a hypocrite. A hypocrite is not someone who has learned a lesson. So you sowed some wild oats when you were a teen and you did things all wrong and backwards and got into this or to that and now you're an adult and you have kids and you tell your kids not to do A, B, and C even though you did A, B, and C. That doesn't make you a hypocrite. That makes you wiser. You learned some lessons along the way. Is this helping somebody? Right. I can tell my kids to not do something that I did. Some of us give our kids way too much freedom because we're like, well, we did it. Yes, but didn't you learn? <laughs> Let your kids stand on your shoulders. Don't have them jump in the same potholes that you did. A hypocrite is not someone who is wrestling with sin. We can say made a mistake and it feels like a one-time thing, but they're... There are many of us in the room that are currently wrestling with sin. It's an ongoing battle. Whether it's in the light or it's hidden, that's between you and God. But you are currently wrestling with your ego, with pride, with anger, with insecurity, with unforgiveness, with pornography, with sexual sin, with... Whatever it is that you're currently wrestling with, listen, everyone in this room is wrestling with something. There's not a one of us that are perfect. Not a one. Not the guy from the microphone to the two-year-old in the back. No one is perfect. Every one of us is wrestling with something, and we don't need to be ashamed of that. We don't need to hide it as if we're, we're perfect it doesn't make us a hypocrite. I hope you're hearing me, church. It doesn't make us a hypocrite to wrestle with sin. It might make us a hypocrite to embrace sin. But wrestling is not embracing. The parable that we just read speaks to both those inside the church and those who've left the church because of hypocrisy. We're going to walk through it real quickly together in the remaining, I don't know, five more minutes here. Matthew 18, 21 through 22, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? 
and I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Peter's asking a genuine question. Oftentimes when there is a parable of Jesus, it's prompted by a question that is asked. Usually that question is kind of a facetious question, a question that's trying to trick Jesus from Pharisees. This is an honest question from a disciple who really just wants to understand this notion of forgiveness, how to forgive people and how many, many times to forgive people. Earlier on in the chapter, Jesus talks about appropriate forgiveness. He talks about children. And by the way, isn't it so easy to forgive children? It's just so sweet. When they're so little and they do something wrong and you're like, oh, it's okay. You burned a house down. It's okay. Do you know what I mean? The older the kids get, the more difficult it is to forgive. Michaela, when she was two or three, we were out in Giddings at a family event, and she went missing in the dark. We couldn't find her. We were running around, and cars were leaving, and we were freaking out, and it was a long time. And we finally find her in the closet hiding. We open the door, and she's got just makeup everywhere. And I had been on the verge of tears, freaking out, wondering if she was in the stock tank. Like, we didn't know. We were scared. And the moment I saw her, I'm just like, precious. So precious. Look at this, guys. I found her. Look at this. And she's so cute. Get the camera. Get the camera. That was, that was cute. But could you imagine if Tristan went missing and he was gone for hours and hours and hours? And then I go to the closet and I open the closet and he's putting on makeup. That would be a different conversation. (laughs) When our kids do something wrong, we're gracious. We're quick to forgive our children. And it would do us well to be quick to forgive others. And Peter is asking, how many times? How many times should I forgive? And it's natural to seek justice and revenge. We all know the saying, I don't get mad. I get Look at that. We are culturally wired for revenge. I don't get mad. I get even. The king of France, King Louis XII, said, Nothing smells so sweet as the dead body of your enemy. And we are nurturing past hurts and holding grudges. And those are natural fleshly responses, church. That, that's what the world does. It's actually normal to get angry and to hold on to it and stew. That is normal, but you are called not to be natural. You are called to be supernatural. How many times should I forgive? Peter asked. And he's asking that. He said seven. He thought he was actually going to make Jesus proud because the Jews of that day taught three They taught you could forgive three times. On the fourth, you lay the hammer down. That's what they taught. And they they taught that from Amos 1.3. When the rabbis and uh, the Jewish leaders were studying Amos 1.3, as you can see, it says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, on four, I will not turn away its punishment. So Peter's thinking, 
you know, we're supposed to do three according to the Jews, so let's up that. How about seven, right? And Jesus, Jesus is like, I'm not giving you a number. I'm giving you actually 70 times seven, 490, or seven times seven. Your version may be different. The Jews figured if God forgave three times, it would be arrogant for men to forgive more than that. So Peter was like, how many times? If only I had like the Apple Watch to keep track of the times I've forgiven people. You know, it could look down my count for the day. Oh, yep, forgiving that person. Oh, I'm up to 387 forgivings. Oh, will I forgive you? Yes, yes, I will. Uh, 478, you're getting close. Be careful, because once I hit the 490, it's over. (laughs) Don't you wish, like, Apple Watch could just track that? I love the Apple Watch, by the way. It tracks my steps. This week, I went to Big Ben with my wife, and I walked 13, how many miles? 13 miles in the mountains. No small task, thank you. And... Uh, I looked every night at my Apple Watch, and it said 18,000 steps, 10,000 steps, and that's, that's great. I love steps. It's my goal to get at least 10,000 steps. I've lost about 50 pounds. Thank you again. I've lost about 50 pounds, and it is my goal to walk 10,000 steps every day. I don't always hit it, but that's my goal, and I'm thankful for the Apple Watch that tracks it. But, you know, the truth is um, the Apple Watch doesn't track everything. Like, it tracks my steps, but I could do 10,000 steps around my kitchen counter with cheesecake in both hands. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? The Apple Watch can track the steps, but not what I'm putting in this hole, you know? Like, I could could not want to get in the 10,000 steps so I can tie the Apple Watch to my dog and sit down, throw the ball, eat some chips in the backyard. 40,000 steps, Trey, great job. Like, it doesn't, it it can track the steps, but it doesn't track everything. And so Jesus is saying, we're not going to track the forgiveness because tracking the number, the count of forgiving people doesn't get the big picture. And what I'm after is your heart. I'm after the cheesecake that's in your hand. The steps aren't as important. Like, yeah, forgive, but we're not going to count all of that because I'm after something much richer than the number of steps that you're taking. I'm after a fit lifestyle where everything represents who I am and what I want you to be. The parable theme is forgiveness. Let me just give you these blanks. Parable theme is forgiveness. Oftentimes in parables, by the way, this is a little Bible study hint. You can't break it down line by line and and get like a lesson from each line. You zoom out on a parable and there's usually just one big theme on the parable. Not everything, every element in a parable has to represent something, but overall the theme in this one is forgiveness. All right. The next Verse 23 is when Jesus starts to tell the parable, and I just want to read the parable to you so I can land the plane today. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king 
who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owned, owed him 10,000 talents. Look at your neighbor and say, that's a lot of money. This man owed a lot of money. Let, let me explain it to you. The daily wage was one denarii. Denarii for a day's wage. One talent is 6,000 denarii. So a worker making six denarii in a week, working six days a week, observing the Sabbath, it would take 1,000 weeks for one talent. 1,000 weeks for one talent. This man owed 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents equals 10 million weeks, which equals 192,307 years. The point Jesus was making about this man that was so in debt was this. I owe a debt I could never repay. It was a number that Jesus made up to be so absurd and so huge, the audience would know this was impossible to ever repay. He goes on in verse 25, But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he was to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payments be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. He was going to have to have his wife and children sold. You and I should know today that my debt affects more than just me. My sin affects more than just me. My unbelief affects more than just me. We think because we're hiding somewhere with lights off, windows closed, computer open, nobody sees but just me, that it's impacting no one. But your sin always impacts more people than just you. Even if your family never finds out about your sin, it impacts the flow and the rhythms and the trust of your family. There is a spiritual dynamic at work. Your debt impacts more than just you. But wait, there's good news. There's good news. Verse 28, but that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. How much did this guy owe? The new guy owes a hundred denarii. The original guy owes 10,000 talents. Okay, so this is a small amount. Odemus, 100 denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So this man who just got forgiven a huge sum, refused to release someone else from a very small sum. Whew! I can afford to give away the grace I've been given. You can afford to give away the grace that you've been given. Matthew 18, verse 31. We'll close this out. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, 
They were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I have had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Those who forgive others are forgiven by God. So I started out talking about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy in the church really centers on the issue of unforgiveness. To combat hypocrisy in our lives, we have to continually remind ourselves of God's grace toward us. Second to last blank. Combat hypocrisy in our lives by continually reminding ourselves of God's grace toward us. We are forgiving, I-N-G, because we are forgiven, E-N. We are forgiving because we are forgiven. Let me, let me give you one final thought. Have you ever heard someone say, if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you? You ever heard that? I mean, the parable just says that. It, it literally just says, if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. But here's what I think. I was reading that parable of the man who got forgiven by the king, and then he wouldn't forgive the guy that owed him a little bit. And here's what I think. It doesn't say this. This is just trace thoughts. I think he demanded the little money from his friend that owed him because he didn't really believe that the king had truly forgiven him of his debt. I think he was just trying to start collecting and planning the next garage sale and figuring all of that out because, yeah, he just released me and said he forgave me, but I better start getting my money together in case he wants the 10,000 talents. So he didn't extend the forgiveness because he didn't actually believe that he was forgiven. I want us to know today as we leave, if you have asked Jesus into your heart, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. Believe it, know it, receive it. You are forgiven. Will you stand to your feet? antidote to hypocrisy is me understanding that I have fallen short of the glory of God. But thankfully there's been a Savior who died on a cross for me, for my sin. And when I notice uh, 
just how unworthy I am of the sacrifice that was made. Suddenly, I'm not so worried with all the offenses that you've done toward me. Your hypocrisy doesn't bother me because I understand that I am a wretched sinner in need of a Savior. Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you today. God, I thank you. God, I thank you for our time together today. I thank you that while we know hypocrisy is a problem in the church, may our our eyes be set on you, Lord. May we not look to a man or a woman or a leader or a service or a church to fulfill the needs that only you can fulfill, God. God, I ask that you would just go with us this week. Allow us to practice forgiveness on a holy level, understanding that we have been forgiven so we can forgive. In Jesus' name, I pray. Let the church say amen. Amen. Now, I have to ask before I dismiss you, did everyone finish or anyone finish the hide-and-seek puzzle? Did anyone get the puzzle done? One of them was missing. Which one? wrong. I left that off so you can have practice for giving me this week for having you look for that word all service. Now that you've been to church, go be the church. God bless you. I love you.